Revelation 17, we've been going through the book of Revelation, first time in 15 years uh, we've gone through this book, and it's been a challenging book, but also it's revealed a lot of things about, uh, I think, the church, the world, and stuff that has helped some of us, and we are going to be uh, looking at the whole chapter today, verse 1 through to the end, Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful." And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind in handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, let us ask God's blessing upon his word read and preached. Our Father, we come before you asking for special grace to allow us to understand these complex truths. We are not naturally able to receive the things of God and so... In Christ, by the Spirit, we can. And so we ask that we may receive more of Christ's Spirit and clarity of truth and live out the realities of what we know to be true. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.
Well, as the weather improves, uh, my wife brought out her uh, Nikon camera, and uh, I think yesterday alone, between Thomas playing basketball, Matthew and Josh playing soccer, we took a hundred pictures, and as I got home and finally put my feet up and looked on the camera at all of the, the images, we said, okay, let's get the cord and download these onto the computer. And about an hour and a half later, after 50 different cords, uh, I started to get somewhat despairing of finding the cord. Now, what those other 50 cords are for is another question. And how much money I must have spent on the things those cords go into is also another question, which will not be answered today. But what was so frustrating about it is I thought, ah, this is it. It looks like it will fit. And you marched triumphantly and said, this is it. I found it. And no, it doesn't go in. Then you try it again. And it looks like it's going to fit, but it doesn't. And you know how bad it got? I even asked the young adults group on Facebook this morning with a picture, do you have one? I should have known young adults don't use cameras. How can you take a selfie with a big camera? That's, that's all they do with their phones, you know, like this. So I, I need to ask old people, people with class, you know, zoom lens, all that stuff. I need a cord. So if you have a cord for a Nikon camera, let me know because i got some nice pictures my son took. Now, what does that have to do with Revelation 17? Well, Revelation 17 actually is about something that looks appealing, that looks like the reality, but isn't. It is the story of a prostitute who is arrayed in a certain manner that looks like how the bride of Christ is described in later chapters. There are certain allurements of this prostitute, just as we are to be allured to Christ, But what we find is that appearance and reality do not, in fact, match up. And there is language throughout this chapter that is indicative of what is true of God and Christ is appropriated to the prostitute and to the language therein, but is not actually the reality. And your job as a Christian, and what John is trying to do, is he's trying to wake us up to the reality versus the mere appearance. That's what chapter 17 is about. So just as he is told by an angel to come and see something, so in chapter 21, he will be told to see something else. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He's given two visions. One, of a prostitute, one of a bride, the wife of the Lamb. And these opposites have many similarities. So you will see gold, precious stones, pearls, fine linen attributed to both. But the attractiveness of the one bride is hollow. It's short-lived. There's the language of one hour, and it ultimately perishes and fades, whereas the beauty of the bride of Christ is eternal. So as he opens up in chapter 17, he is told he will see the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Babylon was on many waters. It's a sign of of authority. And what has he shown? Well, he's shown that this prostitute is seated 
on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now what you will find is that the sexual immorality described here is not really just about sexual immorality. Whenever you see sexual immorality in the scriptures, very closely connected to sexual immorality is the sin of idolatry. So if you go to the Old Testament, you will find that false desire leads to a false love and it leads to a false worship. You get to the New Testament and you find that false desire leads to false love and false worship because people do not change. So in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul will say, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, the first sexual immorality, then impurity, and there's different ways of speaking of sexual immorality here, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. But then, he says, which is what? Idolatry. What is going on here in chapter 17 is exemplified by the language of prostitution, by the language of whoredom, by the language of chasing after something that is evil, and the language of sexual immorality is used to describe faithlessness. Is it sexual immorality literally? Yes. But is it more than that? Yes. So the woman in verse 4, you will notice, is what? Well, she is arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Here is a counterfeit of the true wife of the Lamb. And so, what does John see in chapter 21? He sees the bride's beauty portrayed in the imagery of gold. Chapter 21, verse 21, precious stones, pearls, and fine linen. And That bride is attractive. But this bride is also, in a certain sense, meant to convey attractiveness. Not to be just so ugly by obvious looking of this harlot. In other words, John is saying that there's something attractive about this on the outward appearance. When you look at the world and its sexual immorality and its abominations and all of these things, there is something enticing about it to every sinner even to Christians who have indwelling sin, will be allured by this possible temptation. This is a salient reminder to you young people about marrying in the Lord, about finding someone who is actually one who belongs to Christ. There will be those in the world who are attractive. They will allure you. They will actually be nice people. They will not be godly people, but they will be nice. There will be an attractiveness to them. They may even be literally very attractive, and that can be even more of a danger. And it has happened so many times where people have learned the hard lesson of Proverbs chapter 7, that you are led astray and it ends in death. It's right here in chapter 17, the microcosm and the macrocosm of what is being spoken. The world goes after this alluring beauty of the harlot, but it is also a danger for Christians. It's a danger for young men and young women. And this name by which she is named 
is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. So whatever you may see in the world that's attractive, you have to remember that for all of those allurements, there is a cup of abominations, and that means there is a cup of judgment coming upon them. And John then marvels at this woman's drunkenness. You see that in verse 6? Verse 6, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now, this is a very interesting verse because is he just astonished? Or is there even a sense in which John sees the attractiveness of this woman? So as this vision is given to him, is there a sense in which he sees that there is some way in which he feels the pull? That's a question that we can ask of ourselves as Christians If you don't think that you are somehow allured by the world at times, then you clearly are not living in the reality of everybody else. So the response of the angel seems to suggest that the angel sees John is going, hang on now, this is is something that on the one hand I see the abominations, but on the other hand I see the allurement. So the response is, why do you marvel? I will explain all of this. I'll tell you the mystery of this woman. I will show you the end of this woman, this prostitute, and the judgment that will come upon her. And what is that? Well, as we see in verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to arise from the bottomless pit. Now, do you notice that language in verse 8? Who was and is not and is about to rise. That is almost the language of Christ, who was and is and is to come, except there is one word there that makes all the difference, who was and is not. That is to say, this beast and everything associated with the beast and the prostitute is temporal, finite. There will be an end. There is no eternity to its allurement. There will be destruction unlike Christ. And then the language is offered in terms of how we understand this. This calls for a mind of wisdom in verse 9. Now the seven heads, Rome was built on these seven hills, so it's language they would understand. But it seems to me these mountains are reflective of, of authority and power and rule. So these seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There is a sort of control and power They also have seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now, you can imagine how commentators have spent endless pages trying to figure out who all of these literal kings are. When it may be a more simpler solution that this is symbolic language to describe various authorities and powers and world rulers that have this alluring influence over the world. Whatever the case may be, these kings and whatever authority they have is an authority that will ultimately be destroyed. So the seven or eight kings you see in verses 10 to 11, 11, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the language of eighth may be another sort of replication of a counterfeit Christ image. The number eight was associated with Christ in the first century. He was 
in effect, raised on the eighth day, the first day of the week, but it was the day after the seven-day week. There's the language of the eight people in the ark. It was a number that uh, was understood in terms of salvation. So there's this counterfeit ruler trying to be like Christ. But notice that in this final conflict, the lamb and his people will win. But what's interesting is how they will win. So in verse 15, notice what John says. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So this harlot is reflective of the godless in the world. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will, this is what's so remarkable, hate the prostitute. So the prostitute is holding abominations, the beast is holding abominations, but these who are holding abominations end up, what? In an unholy war. Now notice how John continues. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Why? Because God has done this. God has put into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. This is remarkable. When you talk about the overthrow of the wicked, you might say, well, the prayers of God's people, and Revelation tells us that that is one reason. You may talk about God's power. That is another reason. But equally so, another way in which the world will be defeated in their apparent onslaught of the people of God is by the world devouring themselves, by the world being turned upon themselves. And you do see this from time to time. And God's wisdom is to set it in their hearts until the words of God are fulfilled. And so the woman that you saw, John, is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, I wanted to make a few points of application in regards to chapter 17, and I have to get to the third point. So if I don't get to the third point, we're all in big trouble. Now, the first point, though, that I wanted to make does actually have to do with what John is speaking about here. Even though I've said that sexual immorality is not the only thing he's speaking about, he certainly is still speaking about it. So, in this chapter alone, when you see the language of sexual immorality, it's actually the word porneia in the Greek, and it's used six times just in this chapter. And what John is trying to tell us is that when the world acts like the world, and when people are godless, there will be idolatry, but there will always be with idolatry sexual abnormalities. There will be sexual perversions. It will be abominations. And that is precisely what is happening. It is happening around us. In fact, in Westminster College in Salt Lake City in Utah, I don't suggest you go there based upon what I'm about to tell you. But they speak about on their website an art form that requires serious contemplation. Now that's fair. Art requires serious contemplation, I'm told. 
This is the direct quote. We will watch pornographic films together and discuss sexualization of race, class, and gender as an experimental radical art form. You can go to university, pay money in a third-year, 300-level course to watch porn with your professor. And this is somehow normal now. This is somehow not the Babylon Bee. This is people on a website at a higher learning institution where you may send your kids and they're saying, we're going to do this in terms of serious contemplation. I, can't th- I think I'd rather be in jail with mass murderers than in that classroom. My wife sent me a story of a young man. He had scholarship offers. He was a baseball star, I think swimming. Christopher Dolly. And it talks about his obsession with Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. It was quite interesting, actually, because I was talking to a soccer coach this week. He's not a, a Christian at all, uh, but I know him. He's, he's struggled through cancer, things like that. And he was talking about his girls' team because I had a player I wanted to send to him who I thought had a chance for his girls' team. And he brought up Snapchat. He's like, oh, if you don't get me started on Snapchat. But in the article about this young man, this is what you read. He often stayed up until 3 a.m. on Instagram messaging with others, sometimes swapping nude photos, his mother said. Can you think of Worse words to come after swapping nude photos than his mother said. He became sleep-deprived and obsessed with his body image. His parents said he never showed outward signs of depression or of suicidal ideation. He shot himself. He's living in a very dangerous, dangerous world right now. It is full of sexual abnormalities and abominations. He is a successful, apparently successful young man who could go to any college based upon his athletic abilities. He's dead. And then you can go onto your Netflix account and you can watch, not she's expecting, but he's expecting. Go onto your phone, your smartphone today, and look at your little emojis. There is now a man, not with a pot belly, but a pregnant belly as an emoji. Now, after you get around joking about all of these things and seeing how ridiculous it is, you should weep. This is normal. It's normal in the eyes of the world to have a man with a belly that allegedly has a baby in there. And TV shows saying he's expecting a young men who are staying up at 3 a.m. while their parents are sleeping, sharing nude photos of themselves and then blowing themselves away. And people going to university and watching porn with their professors. And I could go on and on and on. And the worst thing is the naivety of Christians, even parents, when it comes to these things. He showed no signs of depression. Really? Now, why do people defend these abominations? Why do people defend a male destroying a female swimming race or a male wrestler destroying a female wrestler? Why do they defend this? Because They don't want to accept that there is an objective morality, that there is a God who says there is right and there is wrong. There is judgment 
for those who do what is wrong. And so the only morality in the world right now is that you are Lord of what you want to be true. And anything that says that is not true is wrong. And that becomes an objective morality in its own sense, does it not? The only truth is that your truth is what matters. And anyone who says your truth doesn't matter is wrong. And you get in this inescapable snowball effect of once you say there is no objective morality, you've created another one. This is exactly what John's talking about. The abominations of this world. And sadly, it's still alluring to people. But closely connected with that is the idea that God will use the wicked against themselves to accomplish His purposes. You can already see how the craziness of what has happened in our sexual culture is unraveling where the world is against the world. Where all of a sudden those who are lesbians are getting upset with those who are transgender and those who are this and that and they're fighting against each other. You don't even need to be a Christian and you speak out and then you're canceled by those who you are allegedly in concert with. What is God going to do? He's going to set the wicked against themselves. He did that in the case of His Son. The wicked did what? They only served to bring about God's purposes. You may not have been reading Judges chapter 7 last night as your devotion. Anybody? Good. That would be kind of weird. <laughs> not in that sense, but just that I would bring up that chapter and you were doing it. Go ahead and read Judges. You should read Judges, actually. But you know there's Gideon and the battle and he wants all the soldiers to feel in a position of strength and God says, no, 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 no. Less, less, less. Gets to 300. You get to verse 22, and then you read about the battle. What ends up happening, actually, is that those he goes to fight turn upon each other. They start killing each other. God is going to win, and the way he's going to win is going to be glorious, because the way in which he wins is by turning the wicked against themselves, that the beast is against the prostitute, not ultimately against the bride, because he cannot defeat the bride. But then finally, and most importantly, you can read this article online. It's a short essay. It's a bit archaic. Thomas Chalmers, Scottish theologian. But he has what is one of the most, I think, uh, powerful essays on Christian life. And I think it has so much to do with what we're discussing here. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Now, don't go and look up expulsive because if, unless you're a urologist, you know that it's, anyway, it, it's using it in a theological sense, let's just say. But it's important to understand this because he talks about the expulsive power of a new affection. You can't just see the prostitute for who she is. You can't just see the world for what the world is. You can't just say, oh, in my day we would never have allowed this. I can go and take you to a number of individuals in Victoria, Vancouver that I know who aren't Christians and they'll say, yeah, this world is a very bad place. That is not enough. We have to exchange an old affection for a new one. Because as Chalmers says, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of. 
So think about someone who is raised on junk food. And they become educated about healthy food. And so they say, okay, I'm going to stop eating junk food and then I'm going to be okay. But they don't eat anything. Your gut isn't going to allow that. Because there's always a grasping tendency to be filled. And the human heart is like that. You can see junk food for what it is and how it will destroy you. But unless you replace that junk food with what is good food, you're going to die anyway. So then, Chalmers makes this point, the love of God and Christ and the love of the world are two affections. And they're not even really a rivalry, but an enmity. And they are so irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same human heart. Now, here's the point. The only way to dispossess an old affection for the world, for its idolatries, for sexual immorality, is by the expulsive power of a new one. That is, an internal desire to reach after something truly beautiful. And so, preaching on the dangers of the world will not actually solve a single problem for any one of you if it is not also at the same time replaced by the attractiveness of Christ. So what does John do? He doesn't say, well, you know, I've, I've seen a lot in chapter 17. I've given you lots of information. I think I'm going to wrap this up. The book of Revelation would not be the book of Revelation if he didn't continue to give his readers a sight of true beauty, of everlasting beauty, of Christ in his glory. Because you either will possess a habit of love for the world and all of its allurements on which you stand no chance against this prostitute, or it must be replaced by a habit of love for Christ and His glory. And that alone is going to keep you from your love of the world, not just hatred of the world. We all hate the world when we see what's happening as Christians. But the question is not, do you hate the world? But do you also love Christ? And you don't need to be a Christian to hate this world in a certain sense. You can just be a moral, upstanding human being. But a Christian goes farther and says, I will take the love that is in my heart and I will let it flow into Christ and back to me. Into Christ and back to me. Because unless I do that, I will find myself drinking that cup of abominations as soon as I walk out of that door. As soon as I go home. Replace your love for the world with a love for Christ his bride, and all of the eternal glories that will be yours one day in him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that you will please remind us that seeing the prostitute for who she is is not enough. We pray that we will see Christ for who he is and that we will be allured by him and only him. And that we will sink our souls into his love and his love into our souls. For his name's sake, amen.